In 2006, the veteran science reporter Sandra Blakesley published an article in the New York Times touting what she called the cells that read minds. The piece kicked off a mounting number of op-eds, magazine profiles, and TED Talks over the next few years dedicated to uncovering the implications of those cells, which were called mirror neurons. At the height of their visibility, mirror neurons were held out as the key to an unbelievable set of human capacities. Madeline Nash and Time Magazine called them, quote, the roots of empathy. Mirror neurons were the key to empathy, to feeling what others feel, the key to what's often called mind reading, um, that is, you know, inferring the thoughts of other people as well as their feelings. And then these sort of broader uh, claims about, you know, it's mirror neurons are the thing that make us human. This is Cecilia Hayes, a professor in psychology and the theoretical life sciences at Oxford University, who has studied the research around mirror neurons. Mirror neurons exploded in popularity because they were supposed to provide the answer to vital questions that have never had an easy answer. How did humans develop their complex social abilities? Why do we feel empathy for strangers? Are we naturally moral creatures? If mirror neurons really let us read each other's minds, they could hold the key to understanding human evolution and human nature. Welcome to Illuminations, a limited series from Ministry of Ideas about the complex and captivating relationship of religion and science. In this episode, we'll be exploring why mirror neurons held such a strong grip on the popular scientific imagination in the late 2000s and early 2010s. The story of their rise and fall as the, quote, cells that shaped civilization tells us about the kinds of stories we seek to explain our fundamental selves. The popularity of mirror neurons points to the power and the limits of origin stories when it comes to unlocking who we are as humans. Neurons are the basic unit of brain activity. They send signals when we perceive, act, feel, and think. If I lift a stack of books, for example, neurons will fire in my brain. Neurons were first described in 1891 by the Spanish anatomist Santiago Ramón y Cajal. But about a hundred years later, in 1992, scientists identified a new kind of neuron in the brains of monkeys. They called it a mirror neuron, and soon after, they confirmed their existence in human brains too. Mirror neurons are neurons that send signals both when an action is performed and when it is observed. Say I see a friend lifting a stack of books. About 10% of the neurons that would fire if I were lifting the books also fire while I watch my friend lift the books. These neurons mirror my friend's actions back to me. Here is neuroscientist V.S. Ramachandran in a TED Talk from 2010. So here's a neuron that fires when I reach and grab something, but it also fires when I watch Joe reaching and grabbing something. And this is truly astonishing because it's as though this neuron is adopting the other person's point of view. So this is important for imitation and emulation. Well, why is that important? This is the basis of this imitation of complex skills is what we call culture and is the basis of civilization. Because mirror neurons fire when we see other people performing complex actions, they can help us imitate and learn to perform those actions for ourselves. For enthusiasts of mirror neurons, this imitative function 
has profound human significance. In fact, Ramachandran's TED Talk was called The Neurons That Shaped Civilization. Imitation, after all, is what makes civilization possible. It's how we learn anything, whether that is how to build a fire, or weave a basket, or design a rocket. One person figures out a skill, they teach someone else, and they teach someone else. Deployed over and over, imitation lets us quickly build and transmit a body of knowledge, skills, and technological advancements, collectively known as culture. Of course, what we think of as a civilized human society is not just a society with advanced technology, like fire or cell phones. It's also one capable of fostering cooperation and care among its members. Here, too, mirror neurons have a role to play. Mirror neurons fire in response to others' actions. But according to some scientists, they also fire in response to others' sensations. Have you ever winced while watching a waiter grab a hot plate? Your reaction to the waiter's sensation of heat and pain is an instance of your mirror neurons firing as if you had grabbed the plate. You may literally feel for the person you witness. These shared feelings give mirror neurons their potential moral significance. In describing mirror neurons as the roots of empathy, science journalist Madeline Nash noted, that mirror neurons are linked to shared emotional states. When my mirror neurons fire in response to someone else's smile, my brain associates that firing with the state of happiness I normally feel when I smile. But my happiness isn't being triggered by my own experience. It's being triggered by the other person's happiness. In this way, mirror neurons are the catalyst for empathy, the ability to sense and share in what others are feeling. This kind of empathy is a building block of morality. Perhaps the single most universal principle of morality is what's known as the golden rule, the maxim that we ought to treat others as we would wish to be treated. Forms of this rule appear in almost every ethical tradition and in all major world religions. It's the teaching, love your neighbor as yourself in the Jewish book of Leviticus and the Christian gospel of Luke. It's the prophet Muhammad's injunction, as you would have people do to you, do to them. It's the rule of Dharma in Hinduism and a cornerstone of Buddhist ethics. The rule teaches that since we don't wish to be harmed, we have a moral duty to avoid harming others and to help them if they are suffering harm. What mirror neurons provide, so the story goes, is an immediate emotional sense of when and how others are suffering and an impetus to help them. When we actually experience something of another person's pain, we may have a stronger inclination to help relieve it. Mirror neurons suggest that our desires and our duties align. In other words, our brains are pre-wired to make us moral creatures. Feeling what others are feeling can move us to treat them as they should be treated. Here's V.S. Ramachandran again. If I now watch you being touched, I literally feel it in my hand. In other words, you've dissolved the barrier between you and other human beings. So I call them... Gandhi neurons or empathy neurons. There is no real distinctiveness of, of your consciousness from somebody else's consciousness. And this is not mumbo jumbo philosophy. It emerges from our understanding of basic neuroscience. The mirror neuron system lies in the interface, allowing you to think, think about issues like consciousness, representation of self, what separates you from other human beings, what allows, allows you to empathize with other human beings. The fact that we can literally feel someone else's pain was taken as biological proof that we were built to be cooperative and empathetic. 
This positive account of human nature might seem to jar with religious traditions like Christianity, which emphasize humanity's innate sinfulness and the need for redemption. This positive account of human nature might seem to jar with religious traditions like Christianity, which emphasize humanity's innate sinfulness and need for redemption. Do we really need God's grace to perfect us if we have morality biologically built in? But evangelists of mirror neurons have been eager to explain how these neurons could make sense within religious traditions and even make sense of those traditions. In a 2012 New York Times piece, the late chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, Jonathan Sachs, evoked mirror neurons as scientific evidence that, quote, we are hardwired for empathy. We are moral animals. Neuroscience and biology, he explains, have shown that we evolved two biological patterns of reactions in our brains. One is most sensitive to threats to ourselves as individuals. The other focuses more on our group. Natural selection, the basis of Darwinian evolution, means that individual organisms must often compete with each other for resources. But we also evolved altruistic capacities to help and cooperate with other people because these capacities helped our communities and everyone in them survive. The fundamental problem of cooperation is how, when there's a tension between what's good for me and what's good for us, how do you get people to do the us thing? This is Joshua Green, a psychologist at Harvard University who studies moral decision-making. And you know, my general argument, and others have made this argument as well, going back to Darwin, that our social emotions are designed to help us get into that us place, at least within a, a, a natural human group. Our intuitions are reasonably well aligned for life within the tribe. Most of morality is about combating pure selfishness so that we can empathize with other people. We have all of these emotional responses that regulate the basic problem of me versus us. These scientific findings about the evolution of altruism and cooperation help show, according to Rabbi Sachs, why religion is crucial for human survival. Religion strengthens and speeds up our innate biological capacities for empathy and vital communal cooperation. And so, says Sachs, far from refuting religion, this new science helps us understand why it matters. Mirror neurons offered a version of what the biologist E.O. Wilson terms consilience. Wilson was an acclaimed biologist specializing in insect behavior who argued that genetic and evolutionary principles could explain the social behavior of insects, animals, and even humans. He called for a consilience, or synthesis, of all knowledge from different fields of inquiry, including science, the humanities, and religion, based on foundational biological principles. Mirror neurons held out the promise of reconciling science with ethics and religion. Individual animals have always had to compete to survive. These competitive, self-serving instincts help explain why humans so often behave destructively towards others. But because they enable empathy, mirror neurons explained why we can also act compassionately for the benefit of our group. Even more profoundly, they were thought to prove that this compassionate behavior was in some way the norm. Morality, treating others' needs on par with our own, isn't a cultural add-on. It's not something that must be imposed on us that our nature constantly strives against. Moral norms codify and reinforce a connective, empathic sense we innately already have. 
This hopeful story about mirror neurons had a powerful grip on journalists and scientists in the 2000s, but it did not last long, as Celia Hayes explains. If you measure the peak of their scientific interest, the absolute peak was 2013-14, around that time. And then um, a, a pretty precipitous decline since then in the number of scientific papers that mention mirror neurons. The problem was that as more rigorous studies were done, the core claims on which the grand promise of mirror neurons rested began to falter. Further research revealed, for example, that while mirror neurons might help you perceive and imitate someone's gestures, they can't do the crucial mind-reading work once thought. They can't tell you what the person meant by the gesture. Mirror neurons alone can't give you access to the other person's mental states. And what subsequent research did was, was very carefully look at whether mirror neurons are contributing to that quite high-level inference about the mind of another person, or whether they're contributing to something much more elementary. And what those careful experiments found was that the mirror neurons will help you distinguish making a fist from pointing. But that's its whole, their whole contribution to inferring the mental states of others. You need lots of other mental equipment to go from, was it a fist versus a pointing finger, to, is this threat or is it triumph? The strongest findings on mirror neurons is how they contribute to the imitation of bodily movements. But mere physical imitation has little to do with sensing or mirroring the emotional states of others. And so it's even less clear that mirror neurons are really the roots of empathy. The narrower, more helpful conception of empathy is just to do with emotions and how seeing an emotion produces a matching emotion in me. And I think what was originally described as mirror neurons couldn't possibly have helped with that because the original mirror neurons were just firing when the monkey or the human saw hand movements or saw eating-related mouth movements. Now, neither of those are especially expressive of emotion. But there was a sprawl after mirror neuron brand became very popular that led to the claims about empathy. The mirror neuron phenomenon of the late 2000s and early 2010s may look in retrospect like just a misguided craze, a far-fetched hope of finding some origin point that would explain the whole of human nature. But it wasn't the first time we'd latched onto such hopes. In the 1950s, the unprecedented violence of the recent Second World War spurred similar investigations into our evolutionary past for answers to vital questions. Do humans have a natural tendency to work together, for example? And is that the source of our immense progress as a species? In the post-war anthropology, there's a real emphasis on the idea of progress as inherent to the human condition. This is Erica Millam, a historian of science at Princeton University. The idea was that humans possess a unique capacity to be able to share the results of their research with each other, and that together there could be a sort of progressive accumulation of, of knowledge and 
artistry in the world so that all of these things were possible out of a fundamental cooperative spirit within humanity. Everyone is very aware of war and aggression as um, as common experiences that everyone has just lived through. However, there is an assumption that war is unusual. This optimistic story about humankind's natural cooperative state wasn't too dissimilar from the story that researchers would tell using mirror neurons 50 years later. But in the generation immediately following, a new story was introduced. Popular science writers in the 1960s came to wildly different conclusions about human nature. In the mid-1960s, there's a series of three books, and these three books were all associated in the mind of the reading public as speaking to a particular vision of human nature as still fundamentally based in animal instincts. These three books were Desmond Morris's Naked Ape, Conrad Lawrence's On Aggression, and Robert Ardrey's the territorial imperative. On aggression uh, is about how in-groups and out-groups form and sort of the cooperation within the core, but then this fundamentally aggressive relationship with other groups. Robert Ardrey's is this sort of killer ape vision of human nature where that initial spark was found in the moment when human ancestors realized that they could pick up bone or a, or a rock and uh, use it not only for hunting, but also for potentially uh, wrecking war and havoc on other human populations. When told by different writers, sometimes using different animal species as points of comparison, the story of humanity's origins could look very different. Sometimes it was cooperation that defined the early human experience. Sometimes it was outgroup exclusion. Sometimes it was violence. But whatever the story was, people wanted to hear it. Not just to understand humanity's distant past, but to understand the human condition now. Would we always live in a world fraught with violence and racial prejudice? Were humans bound by biology to aggressive tribalism? Was morality something that nature inclined us towards, or something we had to continually fight our nature to attain? These origin stories weren't published as technical scientific papers, but as vivid mass-market bestsellers. And there was a huge readership for any work promising to answer these questions. There is an explosion of books that are written for a general audience that are about human nature, that are about evolutionary perspectives, that are about the relationship between science and religion. Over time, new media were used to share scientific findings with the public. In 1980, the television series Cosmos, A Personal Voyage aired, covering a wide range of scientific topics, including the origin of life. It was one of the most widely watched series in American history. When mirror neurons had their heyday, they had their own new medium, the TED Talk. TED, standing for Technology, Education, and Design, is a high-profile conference series that invites speakers to give short, stimulating talks on, quote, ideas worth spreading. In the early 2000s, Ted was starting to post talks online for free. Mirror Neurons told the perfect story for a Ted Talk. The science was interesting, and their optimistic depiction of human nature was inspiring. The Mirror Neuron was, as the writer Oscar Schwartz puts it, 
inspiristing. But one of the problems with TED Talks is that in the pursuit of inspiristingness, scientific accuracy is often sacrificed. There's a number of venues where scientists get into public arguments with each other about the boundaries of what is legitimate science. What are the limits of responsible speculation about large questions like what does it mean to be human or what is morality anyway? So why was it so tempting to speculate so dramatically from preliminary findings on mirror neurons or aggressive apes? Why are these stories so compelling that they find mass markets time and again, even when the last story didn't deliver everything it promised? Perhaps there is something about the origin story, about the idea that we can identify one moment, one trait, one cell that makes us human, that is reassuring and empowering. It claims to offer some bedrock truth about who we are, that will make it somehow easier to find all the other truths about how and why why we behave as we do, for example, and how we can behave better. Mirror Neurons promised a simple answer to these questions. We are capable of moral behavior because mirror neurons build the golden rule into our brains. To behave better, we just need to act on the empathy they let us feel. These were just these little single cells which were being attributed this enormous power and they'd been given this word mirror neurons. And I think this produced a visual image of like beautiful little silver spheres. And these beautiful little silver spheres seem to have the potential to explain the big, messy complexities of human life. I think there was that deep appeal of simplicity. Uh, the complexity can be reduced to something very simple. It's those big, messy complexities that philosophical and religious traditions have historically confronted. These traditions have been full of explanations for why we display certain behaviors, why we sometimes sacrifice for others, and why we sometimes serve ourselves. They're also full of recommendations about the true moral standards we should uphold and how we can atone when we fail them. But religious explanations and recommendations haven't always aligned with each other. Different traditions offer different moral codes, different accounts of human nature, and there's no agreed upon way to decide which one's right. Perhaps the appeal of the biologically based origin story was its promise to identify some undeniable truth, some scientific truth about human nature. And this would be a truth we could build everything else upon. By revealing our origins, science could also show us our destiny where it is we ought to be going, and what we need to do to get there. The thing is, those questions aren't themselves scientific ones. We seek out scientific origin stories because we want to understand ourselves. But that's also why we have to keep seeking out new origin stories, because no single story can tell us everything about ourselves that we want to know. We're drawn to these accounts because they promise to unlock those great questions of meaning and value. But scientific methods and scientific data alone can't answer those questions. Scientists themselves remind us of that. E.O. Wilson affirmed that all human behavior was linked to biological foundations. But he also explains in his work 
that the human species evolved some measure of freedom from the dictates of biological instinct. What humans usually do isn't the same thing as what we can do. Biologist Richard Dawkins wrote in his best-selling book, The Selfish Gene, quote, let us try to teach generosity and altruism because we are born selfish. Let us understand what our own selfish genes are up to because we may then at least have the chance to upset their designs. There's a gap between what biology inclines us to do and what we actually do, just like there's a gap between what we actually do and what we morally should do. Having mirror neurons might mean that we feel some distress when we see someone in pain. Does that mean we ought to feel distressed? Does that guarantee we'll do the right thing in response? Is it right to share more with people whose pain we can see, like our family and friends, when there are people we can't see who might be in even greater need? Theologians, philosophers, and thoughtful people everywhere have wrestled with questions about morality without coming up with universally accepted answers. The way we use science to try to help us answer them sometimes tells us less about actual scientific research than about our own spiritual needs. We have a need to reflect and to understand ourselves. We don't want to go through our lives blindly. We want to guide. But we don't want to be guided merely by useful fictions. We desire knowledge. We desire truth. And it's sometimes this spiritual hunger for knowledge and truth that drives us towards science for answers. This doesn't mean, of course, that science has nothing useful to offer in our quest to understand ourselves. We just need a better grasp of what it does offer. We shouldn't look to scientific origin stories to do all of our thinking for us, to make the hard philosophical problems of existence go away. Instead, we might look at these origin stories not as the final answer to our deepest questions, not as the moment when complexity can finally be turned into simplicity, but as an invitation, an invitation to keep exploring the beautiful mystery of who we are and who we can become. This episode was produced by Simon Brown and Maria Devlin-McNair. Illuminations is a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. We are supported by Harvard Divinity School and the John Templeton Foundation. Illuminations is produced by me, Zachary Davis, Leah Rechtman, Maria Devlin-McNair, and Nick Anderson. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa. And artwork is by Dan Pecci. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends, subscribing, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to get in touch, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a collective of carefully crafted, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. I'd like to invite you to listen to a new Hub & Spoke show called Print is Dead. Hosted by Patrick Mitchell, Print is Dead is a fascinating podcast all about the original influencers, magazines, which are very much not dead. Learn more and listen at longliveprint.co. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.